Paul, as we've seen in the book of Galatians, he's been making an appeal to these churches. He's trying to get them to see the foolish, the fully, the foolishness, the foolishness in this false gospel that they are embracing, that they might turn back to the truth. He's been appealing to his preaching, to their experience in the Spirit. He has appealed to Scripture. He's been making a theological case, as we've seen in chapters 3 and 4. Now Paul is going to turn and make a personal appeal. He's going to package his argument in terms of his labor among them. We will split our text into three parts this morning. We'll see wasted labor, welcomed labor, welcomed labor, and wicked labor. Just like last week, my first point is the longest. (laughs) It is at least half of my sermon. They tell you that's a preaching no-no, but here we are. We begin with wasted labor. That is Paul. He is fearful that his labor among the Galatians might have been a waste. If they indeed truly and finally fall away, it's as though his work would have been in vain. If they turn from the gospel of Jesus Christ, it would have been a waste. We begin in verse 8. But in the past, now but Paul is starting with a contrast. So we have to remember what he said in verse 7. He said that we were once slaves, but we're no longer slaves. Now we're sons, and if we're sons, we're an heir. So in the past, we were son, we were slaves. Now in Christ, we've become sons. Now, he's speaking in terms of the Mosaic law. Israel, they were regarded as God's um, corporate son, but there's a sense in which they were really more like a slave. They knew about the promises of God, but they were far off. They hadn't received the inheritance yet. Now, the Galatians might be thinking, you might be thinking, I've never been under the Mosaic law. I wasn't actually a slave. Maybe I've just moved from one degree of freedom to another as now I've come to Christ. Paul says, verse 8, But in the past, since you didn't know God, you were enslaved to things that by nature are not God's. In the past, before you knew God, this is the reason. Before you knew God, before you came into a saving knowledge of God, Before your eyes were opened to see your sin and the glory of God in the face of Jesus, before you knew God, you were a slave. Spiritually, we before Christ were slaves. You might have thought you were free to do as you please, but you were not. You might have thought even that you knew God, but you didn't. Paul is saying there was a time in our past before we knew God that we were actually slaves. That's true. It's not just that we were slaves under the law, God's moral law, which is also true. There is something more personal and more cosmic at play. You see, where there is a slave, there is a master. And we were enslaved, Paul says, look at the text again, to things that by nature are not God's. Paul is getting them to recall their pagan past, their idolatries. Now, he's not getting them to sinfully relish in it. He's trying to awaken them from their spiritual stupor. This will become clear in a minute. They're turning to the law apart from Christ for justification. It's actually a renewal of their pagan worship. It is a form of bondage. It is slavery. So Paul is saying there was this time when you didn't know God, when you were a slave. It's because you were worshiping these so-called gods. You might have thought you were free, like today I'll worship Zeus, Athena tomorrow. But you might have called them gods, but they aren't. He says they by nature, he's employing kind of a more philosophical term here to describe what they are, whatever it is they are, they are not God. 
There is one God, Yahweh. The 39 articles, this is statement or confession of the Church of England describes God this way. What is the nature of God? This is it. There is but one living and true God, everlasting, without body, parts, or passions, of infinite power, wisdom, and goodness, the maker and preserver. Unity of the Godhead, there be three persons of one substance, power, and eternity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. You were worshiping something, and you might have been calling it a God, but it was not God. Now, what's important for us to see here is that all forms of worship, all of them, we could describe it as a type of servitude, even slavery. You see, that's because when you bend a knee in worship to something, you are submitting to its rule. You are declaring its worth, its importance above you as you submit to it in worship. This is true even of biblical worship. It is a type of servitude before God that we are declaring. We are bending a knee before his rule and his reign. And friends, it is a good thing to be a servant in the household of God. Because God is a good master. He is the perfect Lord. It is not a good thing to be a slave in the household of an idol. So the Galatians, even in worshiping their pagan gods, which are not real gods, they were enslaved to something. What is it that they were actually it for that idols aren't anything real? He says they're not real. There's only one God. So there's not like a pantheon of gods like Zeus is up there and Baal and they're competing with Yahweh for supremacy. They're not real. They don't actually exist. But in 1 Corinthians 10, 19, and 20, Paul tells us that there is real power behind these so-called gods, behind these idols, and they're demons. You see... False gods aren't real gods, but there are real demons behind them seeking to enslave people through their worship. All false worship is demonic. It doesn't matter if it's explicitly religious and the name of the god is Zeus or Allah or Brahman. False worship can shed the cloak of religion and still, and still enslave its followers. Think of the god of materialism. What's important for us to grasp here is that there is a real spiritual power behind false worship and it seeks to enslave you, to keep you in its bondage, to destroy you. Whatever you bent a knee to before you worshiped Christ was your master. You might not have called it God, but Satan used it to keep you under his eager to draw you back. This is what's happening in the Galatians, even as they are turning to the Mosaic law. Friends, I wonder, what did you worship before Christ, before you became a Christian? What was it that you gave your attention, your affection, your loyalty to? What of that continues to call your name even today? Satan would love to draw you back to his bondage. And yet he often, I think, tries to call us under the guise of freedom. Right? Come back and you can spend your money as you please. You can use your time however you want. You can marry whomever you want. You can have sex with whomever you want. You can finally be free. This is as old as the garden. You can eat whatever you want and you'll finally be like God. You'll finally be alive. Friends, that is not freedom. That is bondage. Satan is, as we heard in our scripture reading, the thief who comes only to steal and to kill and to destroy. And he is good at it. 
The Son came that we might have life and have it in abundance, that we might be free in him. So yes, there was a time before we were sons and daughters, we were slaves. There was a time when we didn't belong to God, we belonged to Satan. It doesn't matter how free you thought you were or how religious or irreligious you might have described yourself. You were wholly devoted in worship to something and that something was ultimately demonic, even if you thought it was religious. Paul goes on, verse nine, but now, since you know God, or rather have known by God, Okay, there was this past where we didn't know God, and because we didn't know God, we were enslaved. And now Paul's saying, but now you know God. Like it shouldn't be possible because you know God. You've come into a saving relationship with him. Your eyes have been opened. Since you know God, or rather, it's almost like Paul's correcting himself, but he's not. He's pressing into a more fundamental reality, something even more basic. Not that you've come to know God, but rather... You've become known by God. A.W. Tozer has this quote. I think it's a great quote. He says, the most important thing about a man, or say a person, the most important thing about a person is what comes into his mind when he thinks about God. Think about it. The most important thing about you is what you think about God. That's because all of reality is ordered toward God. He is our creator, our maker. He preserves us. He redeems us. The most important thing about you is what you think about God. I think it's probably the second most important thing about you. The most important thing about you is what God thinks about you. It's not that you know God, it's that you've actually come to be known by God. What Paul is saying here, he's not saying that there was a time we didn't know God. It's kind of interesting, right? He says you've, come, you've become known by God. It's not like God found you under a rock like an ant. Okay, and relation, and more specifically about God's choice. It's not just that you knew God, it's rather that God chose to, knew, to know you. Your knowledge of God is fruit of the fact that God knows you. So this is why Moses writes in Genesis 18, verse 19, for I have chosen him, that's how the CSB translated, but the word is know, for I have known him, so that he will command his children and his house after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just. This is how the Lord will fulfill to Abraham what he has promised. New Testament, Romans 8, verse 29, for those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Knowledge here, it's relational, it's intimate, and Paul is getting at the fact that God is the one who chose us. God is not responding to us. 1 John 4.19 tells us the reason we love God is because God first loved us. Friends, the reasons you know God is because God first knew you. He chose you. It's not because you're so smart, your knowledge, not because you figured something out. Friends, it is because God, so he knew everything about you. The good, the bad, the ugly, the wicked, he chose you. Friends, God knows you, and he will not forget you. That is the foundation of our knowing of God. It is that God has first known us. The text is stressing that God is the initiator in salvation, that in God's foreknowledge, he elected us. He sent his son to then die for us. 
He called us to the preaching of the gospel. He sent his spirit to give us life, to give us the gifts of faith and repentance. God justifies us. He adopts us. He sets us free. He brings us into this intimate knowledge of himself. We're not talking about some cold, distant cause, but rather the personal God of the universe has known us and called us to know him. Friends, we know God as a response of him knowing us. What Paul is saying is that it should not be possible if God knows you and you then know him to what? He says to turn back again to weak and worthless elements. Those little g gods who by nature aren't gods, how can you be turning back to them? Now it's interesting here the word turn back if you look at it. It's a word that's regularly used in the testament to speak about conversion to christ so it might say that someone for example has turned from idols to serve the living and true god they've been converted they've turned to jesus and paul is saying here that you are in risk of not just deconverting from christ but reconverting to these false gods in turning away from Christ to, for them, the Mosaic law for justification, they're actually converting back to their old pagan tendencies. The risk is, the risk is not just deconversion from Christ, but a reconversion to something else, something that's ultimately demonic. It's becoming, sadly, commonplace to hear stories of people deconstructing their faith, people deconverting. Maybe you've seen videos on the internet people who were once famous in the faith, someone like Joshua Harris, famous author and pastor, you might be familiar who that is, probably people that you grew up listening to in bands, people, it seems like every month you hear a story of someone deconverting. And you probably have friends who've done something similar. You understand their faith. And I think if you listen to these stories, they often pack in their, package their deconversion stories as a turn from bondage to freedom. Like Christianity was bondage. I'm finally free now to be me. Like I'm free to love people and let people love. I'm free to do as I please. Friends, we cannot buy into that lie. It is bondage. It's not just that they've deconverted from Christ. They've reconverted to something that's ultimately demonic. Now speaking of these people like Joshua Harris who are friends, we don't know their hearts. We don't know the reality right? It might be the case that they belong to Christ. If that's true, they will one day return to him. We should pray toward that end. But as far as we can see, they have turned from Christ. They have cut themselves off from the blessing. They have reconverted, as it were, to their old ways. They have returned to bondage, something that is just as spiritual but ultimately demonic. Friends, we should not take it lightly when our friends and family, when our fellow members toy around with such ideas. It is deadly serious. We have to guard our own hearts and our minds from the things that we allow to influence us. We ought to care for our fellow church members, the things that we're intaking. Satan is desperate for you to believe the lie that freedom is found not. You will find thorn and thistle where he reigns as ruler. There is no freedom apart from Christ, only bondage. And Paul is asking, how can someone who is known by God and who knows God 
return to these weak and worthless elements and put themselves back into slavery. Estimated 40 million slaves around the world. Just let that sink in. 40 million slaves today. We're not talking the 1700s. We're talking 2021. 40 million slaves. It takes various forms around the world, even our own country. Prostitution rings, forced labor. Often children are kidnapped. They are forced into armies or sold for marriage or put into prostitution rings. 40 million. Imagine being such a person and longing every day for your life for freedom and finally being set free, being released from bondage. Maybe further yet, being adopted into a family of someone who cares for you. And then, for whatever reason, returning to slavery. Returning back to your old master who does not care for you. Turn back to our sin. When we flirt with the idea of turning from Christ to a different and false gospel, it is like returning to bondage. Paul knows that they're doing this. How? Look at verse 10. You are observing special days, months, seasons, and years. They're observing the Mosaic Law, which is clear from their calendar. Now, Paul is not saying it's bad to observe days, months, seasons, years, I don't think. Romans 14, 5, he's really clear that some people might regard a certain day as holy, others might not, and that it's a matter of conscience. You're okay to celebrate Christmas and Easter, if you're wondering. But the question is one of intention. You see, it's a good thing to honor the Lord on the Lord's day. We've been commanded to do so, to not forsake the assembling. It's a bad thing to think that going to church on Christmas and Easter is going to somehow save you. That is not Christian. It is pagan. The Galatian churches have turned to the law of Moses as a source of life. They're thinking that they will be justified before God based on their law keeping, based on some calendar that they keep, based on their circumcision. Paul is saying, even though they have not previously come from Judaism, that really what they're doing is returning to paganism. You see, pagan religions are about man striving to please and manipulate God. The gospel of Jesus about our efforts, but God's efforts. That God sent his son born of a woman, born under the law to redeem us from the law. He did so by being an atoning sacrifice for our sins, that he is risen from the dead, and that it is a gift. Forgiveness of sins and sonship, the complete blessing one day of living in a new earth that has become heaven, these are a gift of God. In the gospel, we get what God has done, what we could not do to turn to anything else, even if it looks Christian. To turn to anything else is ultimately pagan. Now, to be clear, Paul is not saying the Mosaic law is pagan. Romans chapter 7, it's good and holy and just. It served a particular purpose in redemptive history to regulate Israel's life with God. It, as Paul has been showing us, was temporary. It prepared the way for the Savior. It continues to have a kind of function in our life now as a guide. But to turn for the law, to the law, to be justified apart from Christ, it's actually more like a return to paganism, thinking that we can earn our way to God. It is, for them, deconversion. They are returning to the weak and worth pagan idolatries and desires, right? Our desire to manipulate God, our desire to glory, 
before God based on our performance. You see, our standing before God is not ultimately dictated by our following rules. Yet you see the opposite in something like the prosperity gospel. Be good. Think positively. Pray hard. Give me your money. And God will give you what you want. Friends, that is demonic. It is bondage. You see, the most insidious, the most dangerous gospels are actually those that they seem right. Something about them probably is right. We've said this before. They give you a different Jesus by the same names. They often allow our idols to come up and cozy next to Christ. So they give us the prosperity gospel, the performance gospel, perhaps a social gospel, a patriotic gospel. Friends, a turn from Christ to anything else for life is a turn from freedom to slavery. It is ultimately a return to bondage. This is why Paul says, verse 11, look at the text, I am fearful for you. I am afraid that perhaps my labor for you has been wasted. Wasted. Like if you go the whole way, you deconvert and reconvert. If you renounce Christ and you never return, worthless. If you return from sonship to slavery, from the son to Satan, from the purity of the gospel to paganism, then my works were a waste. Now, you're probably wondering, and I think should be wondering, does this works were a waste, especially when he says he's quite confident that God knows them, that it's evidence in the fact that they have known God. He speaks about the Spirit indwelling them. He talks about them as though they're children of God. Friends, is there a chance we cannot make it? Will work be wasted on us, so to speak? Paul just said God knows them, that they know God. How can Paul's labor be wasted? He's speaking, I think, hypothetically. Here is a tension that we need to feel as Christians. Two things that we need to hold tightly. The first one being, salvation is holy of God and it is a gift of his grace. Friends, that means you cannot lose salvation because you didn't contribute to it in the beginning. Listen to our statement of faith. This is on the doctrine of perseverance. We believe that those whom God has accepted in Christ, effectively called and sanctified by his Holy Spirit, will never totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace, but shall certainly persevere to the end and be eternally saved. Friends, salvation is of God. It is his work, and he's good at it. If you doubt. The second thing that we need to hold tightly, and it's actually a product of the first, is that we are saved by faith, which is the gift of God. It's something we exercise, and it's actually our persevering faith that most clearly demonstrates both to us and to the world that we are indeed Christians. Our statement of faith goes on that their persevering attachment to Christ is the grand mark which distinguishes them from superficial professors. It's like, how do you know who a who's a Christian? They believe in Jesus. For how long? All the way. Now that doesn't mean you can't fall away for a time. I think that's what's happening with the Galatians. I think Paul is confident that God has known them, that is, he's chosen them, that they indeed know God. But right now, it's as though they're falling away. Our statement of faith goes on, that a special providence watches over their welfare, that though they may fall through neglect and temptation into sin, whereby they grieve the Spirit, impair their graces and comforts, 
bring reproach on the church and temporal judgments on themselves. Yet they shall be renewed again unto repentance and be kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation. The Galatians, it seems, they are in a position where they are grieving the Spirit. They are impairing their own graces. They are bringing reproach upon themselves and their churches. But friends, if they are in Christ, if they are known by God, which Paul seems to think so, they will be renewed unto repentance. It can't not happen. And part of the means by which God renews us to repentance is each other. It's his word. It's for the Galatians this letter. They will be renewed into repentance. God is doing it right now through his word as he is stirring up in them fear that, hey, if you turn away from Christ, you will be eternally off. Part of the means by which God renews us is his word. It's each other. If they do reject Christ, they will be cut off eternally. That is a fact. You could think of it as though the Galatians, or yourself if you're ever in this position, it's like you're about to drive off a cliff. The Galatians are driving off of a cliff, and Paul is there at the edge screaming, Stop! Stop! No! He's warning them. He's imploring them. He's begging them. He's telling them what will happen if they do indeed turn away from Christ. They will find themselves eternally cursed. And the Galatians, by God's grace, because they are known by him and know him, they will hit the brakes. You see, God ordains both the ends and the means to the end. He preserves us through his word, through sometimes hard rebuke, through his word and through brothers and sisters who love us. Friends, that means if we are in Christ, you should be comforted. You are clothed in him. You will make it to the end. You can't not. God would have to end up to be a liar. Jesus' blood would have to lose its efficacy. The spirit would have to leave you. None of this will happen. You will make it home. You should feel no comfort. You should place no stake in the fact that maybe you once made a profession or were baptized. Your deconversion to you should be proof that you probably never believed. Friends, if you find yourself in that position, you should repent and believe in the gospel. And if you are really known by God, then you will know him. You will come back. You can't not. You will return to Christ. You will be renewed into repentance. I think what Paul wants us to feel here is a healthy degree of fear. We should fear Satan, who is bent. He is more serious about your spiritual life than you are of your own, I promise you. He is intent on bringing you back into his bondage. Your own sin, your flesh is intent on destroying you. That should sober us. Friends, it doesn't matter how godly you think you are today if tomorrow you abandon the gospel. You will have returned to slavery. You will have reconverted to those things which are not truly God which are worthless, you will find yourself once again a slave. So Paul begins with wasted labor. He fear find themselves renewed to repentance. He's trying to rouse them and us. We should feel a healthy degree of fear. Next, he turns to welcomed labor. Welcomed labor. What Paul's gonna do in this section is remind the Galatians how they initially received him. They're treating him a different way now, but he wants to remind them how they initially received him, that they might receive and welcome his letter in the same way as the words of God, 
And so that they might turn from this false gospel to the true gospel that Paul is preaching. So we consider now welcomed labor. Beginning in verse 12, I beg you. Again, notice the urgency. I beg you, brothers and sisters, become as I am, for I also has become as you are. I think what Paul is getting at here is that he became like a Gentile to them, as though one not under the law. Him, an ethnic Jew, became a, like a Gentile to show them that the gospel comes to no strings attached. It's a gift of grace come from God. The irony is now the Gentiles are thinking that they need to become Jews to be saved. Paul is saying, no, no, no. Me, even as I have become like you, he says, you've not wronged me. I think he's saying initially between us, things are good. Not so much anymore, but verse 13, you know that previously I preached the gospel to you because of a weakness of the flesh. You do not despise or reject. When Paul initially went to the Galatian churches, he had some kind of physical ailment. We don't know what it is. He might have just been sick, something like the flu. I don't know. Maybe he physically struggled from being an apostle, like his body was still recovering from constant stonings and lashings from the weight of the anxiety that he felt from all the churches. It's possible he had a more permanent ailment. Some commentators think that maybe there's something wrong with Paul's eyes. That's why he says you'd be willing to rip out your eyes and give them to me. We don't know. What we do know is there's something wrong with his body. And that the Galatians didn't reject him because of it. Now, why is that a big thing? Well, in Greek culture... Some kind of physical ailment or illness, it was a sign of divine displeasure. Like if there's something wrong with your body, it must be because the gods are angry with you. So think about how odd that would be if that's kind of your worldview, that if you're sick or something's wrong with your body, the gods are angry with you. And you come to these people and you start preaching about God, but you're sick. It, doesn't, it just doesn't make any sense. It's like a, it's like a miracle healer on crutches. It just doesn't make sense. And your message is right. You wouldn't be sick. Maybe it's the opposite. Your message is wrong. That's why you're ill. Now, friends, it might sound silly, but I wonder in what ways we are tempted to judge a preacher not based on the content of his message, but on something different. Are you more inclined to listen to someone if they have a huge Twitter following? if they have so many degrees after their name. Maybe you're more inclined to listen to someone if they dress in a particular way. Maybe you're more inclined to listen, you're eager to hear from someone if they have this skin color and not that skin color. Maybe like Greek culture or prosperity gospel culture, you think that health and wealth is a sign of divine favor. Friends, it ought to qualify someone in our minds to preach God's word what we see in scripture, the qualifications of a preacher or pastor, and it ought to be their faithfulness to the text. It's not what they wear, how they talk, how big their following is, how many degrees they have. It's their faithfulness to the words of Jesus. Rather than being, he goes on, look at the text, on the contrary, you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus himself. Why did they receive him? It was not because of his external appearance, I promise you it was not because of some cultural relevance, a Jew coming to Greeks. It was not because of what he wore. It was not because he was an eloquent speaker. They received him because of the content of his message, which was Christ 
crucified in Christ alone. Friends, I promise you, Paul was offensive. His appearance would have been offensive to them because he was sick. His message would have been offensive as he told them their pantheon of gods were not, by nature, real gods. His message would have been offensive as he told them they were cut off from God because of their sin. It's offensive because he's telling them you can't do anything about it. In fact, you need to turn from yourselves. You need to fling yourself upon the mercy of God in Christ. They did not reject him. They received him. They welcomed him. And notice again the manner in which they received him. He says, you received me like an angel of God as though I were Christ Jesus himself. This is fitting because Paul, certainly as an apostle and us as well as Christians, we are ambassadors of Christ. We are speaking, we ought to be speaking God's words on God's behalf. Listen to what Paul writes the church in Thessalonica. This is 1 Thess chapter 2. This is why we constantly thank God, because when you receive the word of God that you heard from us, You welcomed it not as a human message, but as it truly is, the word of God, which also works effectively in you who believe. They received Paul as Christ Jesus himself because of his words. They heard them as the words of God. Friends, I wonder, do you think of yourselves as a representative of Christ? As you're speaking the truth and love to other members in the body, as you are presenting Jesus, Do you think of yourself as Christ's ambassador? Are you trying to accomplish your mission or his? Do you aim to speak his words or your ideas? We believe, in part because of 1 Thess 2 and other places in Scripture, that when the preacher opens up the word of God, and when he rightly exposits it and explains it to the people, that it's as though God himself is speaking to the congregation. It is an incredibly weighty and sobering task. This is why we give ourselves to serious study and prayer and crafting of our sermons. This is why preaching plays a prominent role in our services, both in the morning service and in the evening service. It's because we believe that God is continuing to speak today through us, through his word. Friends, I wonder, what is your posture before the preacher? Listening to your favorite experienced preacher, be it someone like John Piper or your pastors like Joshua or myself, or whether you're listening to a brother preach his very first sermon ever in an evening service. When God's word is rightly exposited, it demands a certain type of response from us, though it's the very words of God. We ought to welcome the preacher as though we were welcoming Christ, regardless of whether or not it matches our preferences or styles. We ought to receive him as we would receive Jesus. But friends, this is only, only if they are preaching the words of God. You see, the Judaizers had their Bibles. Many false teachers love to use Scripture as a means of enslaving others. But as Paul says in Galatians 1, 8 and 9, if anyone preaches to you a contrary gospel, right? Not that there is one, but if someone comes to you and preaches a different gospel, even if it's an angel or an apostle, let them be accursed, Friends, we ought to welcome as Christ Jesus those who are coming to us with the words of Christ and rejecting those who are not. This brings us to our last point, which is wicked labor. Wicked labor. Paul is going to set up a contrast between his labor among 
the Galatians and the Judaizers among the Galatians. He's going to show us the difference in their intent. Beginning in verse 16, we're still with Paul here. So then have I become your enemy because I told you the truth? Notice the only thing that Paul has done is told them the truth. And yet he fears they might now regard him as their enemy. Friends, it can be easy when our brothers and sisters confront us with our sin to assume that they save us from our enemy. They are acting like our brothers and sisters in warning us. They're trying to save us. Yes, it doesn't mean that they'll always do it in the best way. We are a young church. But friends, we have to regard them not as enemies, but as our friends. James, right in James chapter 5, verses 19 and 20, my brothers and sisters, if anyone among you strays from the truth, And if someone turns him back, let that person know that whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. Friends, if you are only ever willing to speak the truth when you think the person wants to hear it, you're probably not doing a good job speaking the truth in love. If you only ever want to hear the truth, When it doesn't confront you and your sin, you're probably not doing a good job hearing the truth in love. You see, serious situations call for serious words. Paul in love is willing to risk his relationship with them, his reputation, his comfort, maybe even financial gain if it means situations call for serious words. So when we speak the truth in love, even when it hurts, it doesn't make you an enemy. It makes you a loving and caring and concerned brother or sister in Christ. The Judaizers, on the other hand, verse 17, they court you eagerly, but not for good. Friends, just because someone gives you attention, it doesn't mean they have your good in mind. It certainly doesn't mean they have your spiritual good in mind. Many people will be eager to court you. They are zealous for your attention and your following because they want more followers. Friends, you should be selective about who you give a serious ear to, about who you let influence you, be it in podcasts, be it certain types of preachers, be it in the news that you listen to, the friends that you make. R.C. Rouse says this in Thoughts for Young Men. It might sound extreme, I think he's right. He says, never make an intimate friend. That's kind of the driving the strain. Never make an intimate friend of anyone who is not a friend of God. His point is that they will, it's inevitable that they are going to drive you back towards bondage. The, Jews, the Judaizers, they had the Galatians ear. And what they're trying to do, Paul says there, they want to exclude you from me. The one person who cares about their spiritual well-being. The Judaizers are trying to cut the Galatians. Your text might say they're zealous that you would be zealous about them, right, to exclude Paul. Think of the irony here. The Judaizers think they're drawing a smaller circle in the church. To be a Christian means that you've been circumcised, you adhere to the law, you've become a Jew. They think they're excluding Paul from the circle in the church. The reality is they're drawing a circle outside of the church. They're not excluding Paul from the church. They are ripping the Galatians out of it. And Paul tells us why. Your text might say something like, um, they're zealous for you, not for your good, but so that you would be zealous for them. Friends, a a tall tell sign that someone is not after your spiritual good is when they are more obsessed with their image, their following, 
their influence. They're territorial over you. They're more concerned with your opinion about them than the state of your soul. This is the Judaizers. This is classic false teacher. Paul goes on, contrast again, he brings it back to himself. My children, I am again suffering labor pains for you until Christ is formed in you. Paul, he says he's like in labor. He's experiencing labor pains. You see, if you've ever labored over someone, you can say you know what it's like to be in labor. (laughs) I'm just kidding. Happy Father's Day. (laughs) Paul is. I'll be in trouble later. And he says it's a bit like being in labor. He's actually anguishing over their spiritual state. I think the reason he's saying it, notice he says, I am again suffering labor pains. I think the picture we're supposed to see, it's as though once before Paul had birthed them spiritually, so to speak, in the preaching of the word, but because in ways Paul's saying, it's like I'm in labor again. I'm in anguish. I am laboring towards your spiritual birth once again, so to speak. Ministry is indeed like labor. It's work. It's painful. It's anxiety-inducing. But the reward is worth it. Just like natural labor results in life, children in your image, spiritual labor results in life. Children in the image of God. We see what Paul's goal is, that Christ be formed in them. Friends, this is the end goal of all of our labors, of all of Christian discipleship. We're not trying to conform people to our own image. We're not trying to acquire followers for ourselves. We are trying to form people into the image of Jesus, into the image of the Son. False teachers are after their own glory. After ought to be after the glory of God in the lives of the people as they're conforming them into the image of Jesus through the preaching of the word. Friends, this is what we ought to labor towards as we preach, as we teach, as we encourage, as we rebuke, as we serve, as we sing, as we stay. Our goal ought to be that Jesus Christ be formed in the lives of the people. We want to be able to say of each other what Paul said of himself. Like, oh, NBC members, they no longer live, but Christ lives in them. The life they live in the body, they live by faith in the Son of God who loves them, who gave himself up for them. It's obvious. Just look at them. They look like Jesus from the inside out. Our ministry, our motivation in ministry can't be anything less than the glory of God in transformed lives. Friends, those are the people you want to trust your souls to pastors and members who care about you, who want to see Jesus formed in you more than they care about your opinion of them. Paul then wraps up in verse 20, I would like to be with you right now and change my tone of voice, but I don't know what to do about you. I love this. (laughs) Even an apostle, I feel this way as a parent all the time and as a pastor. I don't know what to do about you. Even the Apostle Paul, I don't know what to do. Friends, maybe you have a friend. Do as Paul did. Write them. Go visit them if you can. Encourage them. Rebuke them. Pray for them. Do not give up. Friends, it is important for all of us that we're aware of our own proclivities back toward our sin, back toward bondage. We need to bring our fellow members into our own struggles. Members need to know the idols that we are inclined to return to. We need to let them know what demonic powers might have a stronghold in our lives. 
what truth we need to regularly hear. Friends, God indeed will preserve us. He does so through ordinary people like you. He does so through the ordinary means of grace, through word, prayer, and sacrament in the church. God will persevere us. He will do it through ordinary people, through ordinary means. The one who set us free from slavery will indeed bring us home. The last portion of our statement of faith on perseverance reads this way. That their perseverance depends not upon their will, but on the immutability of the decree of election, flowing from the free and unchangeable love of God the Father, upon the union with Him, and upon the Spirit's sealing and abiding presence, the guarantee of their inheritance. Friends, God's labor in your life will not be wasted. And again, part of the means by which he calls us and brings us home is through his people. We ought to welcome such people as though we were welcoming Christ, and we ought to turn away wicked labors, those who would seek to enslave us once again. May we help one another toward that end. Let's pray. Father, we once again thank you for your loving kindness toward us, that in Christ Jesus we have been set free from bondage, bondage to our own sin, bondage from demonic powers who would seek to enslave us and destroy us. Father, we pray that you'd give us sober minds and hearts, that we would think clearly about our own sin, our own proclivities to answer to the call of Satan. I pray that we would love one another in such a way that we would be willing to speak the truth to each other. I pray that we would welcome such rebukes. I pray that we would be eager to hear your word as it is taught to us week in and week out. May it reverberate in the lives of the people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.